Well, good morning. If you are with the children's ministry, there will be some teachers in the back who would love to walk with your kids. And for the rest of us, we are continuing our sermon series in the book of Colossians. So turn with me to chapter four. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and someone will bring you a Bible. Colossians chapter four. I've learned, especially the hard way, that communication is dangerous. Have you ever put your heart on the line and it doesn't exactly go the way you thought it would? January 23rd, 2006. The mood was set, dinner, candles, And I give this girl the best present anyone could ever give. I verbally wrapped up and said for the first time, I love you. It's very romantic. Didn't go the way I thought it would have gone. She did not reciprocate. She was not there yet. And so I just stood in the vacuum of my disbelief. Have you ever said those words? You've communicated something and you even had the best of intentions. And instantly when the words and the sentence came out of your mouth, you just tried to get them back thinking, oh no, I just offended this person. Ever ever had that experience? Communication is very dangerous. Even miscommunicating. This is sort of ironic, but if you actually know me, you know this is true. I am a terrible communicator. Okay, it's ironic because this is kind of how I make my living. But I am a terrible communicator. Communicator. Recently, my kids brought home, I picked them up at school and they brought home, their teacher gave them like a slip that there was a bake sale the upcoming Friday. So give your kids a couple dollars so they could buy cookies and cupcakes and whatever at the bake sale. Well, I totally forgot. And I was supposed to communicate this to my wife, who's like in charge of that area of our family. And I did nothing of the sort. And so I sent my kids to school with no money, so that they had to negotiate with their friends to figure out how to get money to get cookies. To which I am proud to say they all did. (laughs) Life lesson, right? It's never too early to teach your kids about student debt, okay? (laughs) Communication is dangerous. Even miscommunication. When you communicate, it's not just dangerous when you speak. But it also can be dangerous for the person listening. But here's the problem. Here's the tension. We're a church. We're in the communication game. Right? We speak about God's word to God's people. About the word, Jesus Christ. I mean, we're in the communication game. That's like the whole game. It's about communicating a message, a divine message to people. And it's always going to be dangerous. It's the whole name of the game. I always give you a big idea. Here's the big idea this week in these few verses towards the end of the book of Colossians. Communicating Christ is dangerous for us and it's dangerous to the world. That's what we're going to look at. All right, we're going to, I just want to show you the the structure and then I'm going to read the text. 
right? The, the structure basically is uh, the same structure, but then there's an inverse. There's like a twist. So in verse 2 through 4, right, um, these verses fall into that we are called to pray to God about people. And then in verse 5 and 6, we are to talk to people about God. That's, that's the structure, right? And we're going to look at it in that turn. So talking to God about people and then talking to people about God. So turn with me to Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So go back to verse 2. We'll start there. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now, prayer is, in a general sense, it's, it's communication. It's communicating to God in praise, in thanksgiving, in supplication, in confession. It is nothing short of communicating to the triune God. But it's not always easy, is it? And we know prayer isn't easy because you have this word that starts off verse 2, the word continue. Now, why would that be there? Well, evidently, this church was praying or had been praying, and Paul is now encouraging them to continue to pray. And so the sort of the logic of it is that he wouldn't have write, written continue to pray if there isn't a subtle temptation to stop praying. All churches can kind of fall into the trap of prayerlessness. And so here Paul, right out of the gate in verse 2 says, I need you to continue in prayer. And then in verse 2 you see kind of two, uh, three marks of prayer. Uh, three descriptions of prayer. Three attitudes of prayer. You want to you know the tincture of prayer? Paul gives us three here. Prayer should be marked by steadfastness, watchfulness, and thankfulness, the three nesses of prayer. Steadfastness, watchfulness, thankfulness. So let's just look at them briefly. The, the church should pray with steadfastness. The church should pray with perseverance. I think we all have that inner quitter. It can't just be me. We all have that inner quitter or this sort of theological thought that said, well, I, I mean, I prayed a lot about that last year. Or I prayed a lot about that last week. Or maybe even last night. Or maybe we, we, we think in terms of, I mean, does prayer really even work? God knows everything. So why would I even pray? Or maybe you get up, I like, uh, I like checklists. And maybe you're like, oh, okay, you write prayer on your checklist and go, check, got that off my list, did that for the day, I can move on. Well, Paul would remind us that you might be able to check off prayer, might be able to check off prayer, but you can never checkmate prayer. We are called to persist in our prayers. Actually, some of the, the great parables that Jesus gives is about persistent 
prayer. Knocking and knocking and knocking. So the church is called to persevere in prayer. And then we're, we're called to pray with watchfulness, with our eyes alert. About two years ago, I showed up at 7 a.m. at Fred Meyer before the doors even opened. And there was a crowd of us. We all needed one thing, toilet paper. You guys remember this? You guys probably don't remember this, but it was a thing two years ago. Okay? I got a family, four kids. We needed toilet paper. And all my neighbors are like preppers and had all this toilet paper. We didn't, okay? So I'm there, 7 a.m., trying to get toilet paper. And I'm there, and I'm just, you know, sizing everyone up. I'm like, I got long legs. I can outwalk most of them. But here's my problem. I have no idea where the toilet paper is in Fred Meyer. No idea. So I'm like, okay, what is the most soccer-looking mom? I'm just going to kind of walk and follow her. I'm guessing she knows where it is. She was of no use. She was like getting vegetables. So she failed me. And then I just realized I need to be alert here. So I'm just like looking around. I'm watching. There's like five people walking that way. I'm like, that's my... So I followed them, right? I was just watchful. Well, that's what our prayers should look like. They should be marked with an attitude of watchfulness. I think Paul, when he wrote this, probably had Jesus in Gethsemane in mind, didn't he? You remember that scene? Jesus is in the garden. Peter took some melatonin and fell asleep. And then Jesus turns to Peter and says these words, could you not watch an hour? And he says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. You see, prayer isn't the ceasing of mental activity, right? Prayer is not just saying the same word in like a mantra over and over again. It's not an emptying of yourself. That, 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 That's other religions, not Christianity. Prayer isn't an emptying of yourself. You you might close your eyes in prayer, but you can't close your mind or your heart when you pray. You need to be watchful. That's the second mark. And then he goes into that, that your prayer should be marked by thankfulness. I think most of my prayers, if, if my prayer list is anything like your prayer list, I usually pray the gimme gimme's. You know what I'm talking about, right? Give me this, give me that, give me this, give me that, and they just kind of go on and on and on. Not here. All that is just the rotten prayers of a rotten heart. Instead, he says, your prayer should be marked with thanksgiving. When you're in the mountaintop experiences, when everything's going great, and you just got that job, uh, you know, and, and you got the promotion, yes, be thankful. And when it all comes crashing down and you're in the valley and everything's going wrong, your prayer should be marked with thankfulness. That should be the flavor. Thanking God for the wonderful providences that he brings into our lives and thankful for the hard and often cruel providences that come into our lives. So there in verse 2, he, he sets out, Paul does, to, to say, okay, church in, in Colossians, th- this is what your prayer life should look like. It should be marked with diligence, perseverance, and watchfulness, and thankful hearts. But you might wonder, or maybe you're not wondering it, but you should be wondering, to what end? I mean, what's the point? And Paul goes on and, Verse 3, to tell us what the point of this is. 
Paul says, I want you to pray like this specifically for us. Right? Verse 3, at the same time, at the same time you pray with thankfulness and diligence and watchfulness, pray for us. Now, who's this us? Well, it's Paul and his friends. This prayer is, he's asking the church to pray to God for Paul and his bunch of ministers and preachers and evangelists. Like we, we get the list in verse 7 to 18, basically. And so he says, pray for us. And you'd think, now Paul's going to say, no, here's what I want. Paul's in prison. Paul's going to say, okay, uh, I need you to pray that God would send, uh, get out a free jail card, right? Uh, I need you to pray that um, I'd get, you know, double the food in prison. Um, I, I need you to pray that we get out of prison and that, you know, the things that happened early in Acts would happen and there'd be an earthquake and a hole and we'd be able to flee. You, you'd think that that would be his prayer, right? Pray that God may open a door for us, for the word, to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So, so this prayer is for gospel opportunities, right? That's the language there of an open door. Paul uses this in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. This whole idea, this metaphor of an open door is kind of apostolic shorthand for evangelistic gospel preaching opportunities. And so he says, Colossian church, pray to God for us that God would open opportunities for us to preach the gospel for his friends that they might declare the mystery of Christ, that they might decode Christ. And then he says, pray that I would have clarity. Do you guys see that? That I may make it clear, that is the mystery of Christ, which is how I ought to speak. So he prays, or so he asks this church to pray to God for them, that he would be clear in his gospel presentations when the opportunities avail themselves to them. So what Paul is praying, basically, is for pulpit, no, I put precise pulpit power. That's his prayer. Now, we don't expect this. That's the shocking bit about this. That that's his, that's his kind of petition. That, that's what he asks this church to do. It's very, very shocking. We'd expect many things. Not this one. Not more clarity in preaching. After all, the clarity of his preaching was the very thing that has gotten him trouble all along. My, my friend is candidating at a church, and it got me thinking about when I candidated to become the senior pastor of this church. And many of you asked some wonderful questions, but there's one question you didn't ask. Uh, am I an international criminal? And the short answer is, I kind of am. So one day when I was in West Africa, I'm not going to name the nation because this is public and I don't want to get in trouble. Not that I could get in trouble, but I was walking in an African nation because that's what you do when you're 21. You go to West Africa thinking that a 21 year old is going to solve the world's problem. And that's what I thought I was going to do. So I go thinking I'm going to solve world hunger in a summer, 10 weeks. And I go and I'm walking down in the this city, and I took a picture of the presidential house, gorgeous house, took the picture of it. When I did, some soldiers ran up and detained me. 
And then I get back and I realize that this is a, a crime. Taking a picture of the presidential house is a criminal offense with jail time. And so we're having this discussion and I learn instantly that I can get out of this if I just play dumb. To which I did. I got out. After signing an affidavit that I committed a crime against the nation of Sierra Leone. I wasn't supposed to say the nation. (laughs) So I signed the affidavit, played dumb, and we got out of there. But here, imagine, this didn't happen, but imagine if instead I said, in their language I said, oh, oh, I know what I did. I took a picture and I know it's a crime. I'm going to keep doing it. I'm coming back tomorrow. I'm going to do it. And my only hope and prayer is that the next picture I take is less fuzzy and more clear. Just imagine if that's what I said in that moment. That's what Paul's doing here, right? In a nutshell, that's what Paul's prayer is. He's saying, oh, pray to me that the very thing that got me into prison is the very thing that I want more of. Do you see the dangerousness of this prayer? Paul wants more clarity to preach and decode the mysterious gospel. He wants precise pulpit power. Do you pray like that? Is that when you you pray for the church? You pray for me? Pray for the elders? Those who are preaching? Do you pray like that? Do you pray the dangerous prayer of precise powerful preaching for clear and clear sermons on Sunday for for clarity in Sunday school uh, when the children are getting taught God's word for for clarity in Bible studies and small groups did you pray for more opportunities to for, for, for our church and various teachers in the church to go out and preach the gospel Now, this sounds sort of narcissistic. Like, here's a preacher asking, do you pray for me in this moment? It's not narcissistic at all. That's exactly what Paul's doing here. He's asking this church to pray to God for them that they might be clear when they preach the gospel and that God might open more and more opportunities to do the very thing that that got them into trouble in the first place. Is that how you pray for our church and for what we do here on Sunday? I mean, preaching is, in many ways, the main thing. It's why Protestant churches have the pulpit right here in the center. It's because God's word is going out. God accomplishes supernatural ends through the ordinary means of preaching and declaring and speaking and teaching his word. So do you pray? Do you pray? Do you pray that the the gospel would be freely offered every Sunday to all who come? Do do you pray for clarity? Clarity against any entailments or entrappings of the gospel, right? Do do you pray that, that, that as the gospel goes forth, that the message is clear that this is different than moralism? Do you pray that, that, that this is different than legalism? Do you pray that this is different than some sort of, oh, cheap grace you can just believe and then live however you want? Do you, do you pray that there would be a clarity in the gospel in contrast to all of those things that 
muddle the gospel. Do you pray for the preaching of God's word and the teaching in our church that Christ is presented so beautiful? That he's dressed up so verbally glorious that men and women can't help but run towards him. Do you pray that not just Christ as Savior is preached, but also Christ as Lord? Christ isn't merely the ticket into heaven. God saved sinners through Jesus, unifies him to himself so that they might live in Christ for our good and God's glory. Pray and pray and keep on praying. I think that there's this utter misconception that says that the pew is passive, that you come to just hear. Nothing could be further from the start. Like what's happening right here is a dance. We're dancing right now. You might be playing background music, but you're harmonizing with God's word. And one of the main ways you do that is through prayer. The pew is never passive. If you want the pulpit to be powerful, Paul reminds us that that power comes through prayer. But know that as you pray, and I know that many of you do, as you pray, know that in the same way that Paul asking for clarity got him into trouble, know this, that as you pray those sorts of prayers, it's dangerous. It is the vocational preoccupation and kind of the, the, the dangerous thing about being not only in ministry, but being a Christian church, more clarity gets you into trouble, right? It's, I think it was Benjamin, this quote was attached to Benjamin Franklin. He said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that make me nervous. It's the ones that do, that I do understand that make me nervous. It's exactly right. The more and more God's word is preach in clarity, the more uncomfortable all of us should get. The Bible is not a safe book. The Bible is not a normal book. It is an uncomfortable book. I dare say it is a dangerous book. And if we want people to understand God's word, apply God's word, be transformed by God's word, it comes to the ministry of prayer. So, brothers and sisters, are you guys praying for the various ministries of our church and, and the broader church for precise pulpit power? Do, do you pray that when God's word comes to you, it comes in the form of honey? That's how good it tastes. Or sometimes when you're in your sin and you just really don't want to surrender, it tastes like bitterness. This is dangerous business. And Paul's praying a dangerous prayer in light of the very thing that got him into into trouble in the first place. And he says, I want to double down on that, even if it costs me. All for the sake of decoding the mystery of Christ. So pray. Pray, even if you're not a teacher or a preacher, 
you have a role to play. But, but lest you misunderstand, that is not your only role. And Paul's going to go on, say that one of the roles of the Christian church is to, um, to pray for the active preaching and teaching of the gospel. That's verses two through four. But if you're a Christian, you are never on the bench. There's been season in my life playing basketball that I sat on the bench and you're like, okay, your role is a cheerleader. Hated that. Okay. Sometimes we think of Christianity like that. Oh, we're sitting on the bench as just cheerleaders for these super saints. No, that is not the metaphor of Christianity. And we're going to see it right here. When you get called to Christ, when you become a follower of Christ, when you're a disciple of Christ, you are in the game. And we see it at verse five. Look there at verse five. It says, act wisely towards outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. So, like I said, verses uh, uh, two through four, it was um, Paul asking them to pray to God for people, and now it's the inverse, right? It's talking to people about God. Now, outsiders, well, those are just people outside of the church. So Paul's saying, as you speak to outsiders, those who are not Christians, your conversations and the manner in which you engage those conversations should be marked by something. You remember prayer, our prayer should be marked by a few things. Well, Paul now says that our, our, not just our communication with God should be marked, but our communication with one another should be marked by a few things. You see them there? They, Kindness, wisdom, gentleness, seasoned with salt. Salt preserves things, but I don't think that's the metaphor here, right? Salt makes things taste better. I was making pancakes about a year ago. Couldn't really find the the salt. I didn't put salt in the pancakes. They didn't taste as good. I didn't think it was a big deal until I had utter mutiny in my house saying, we're not going to eat these pancakes. There's no salt. Salt kind of uh, increases the flavor. I think that's what's going on here. He's saying that the manner in which we talk about God, the manner in which we have conversations with people about God should should accentuate the flavors and goodness and glory of God himself. Now, I think we've seen the adverse of this, Right? I think sometimes when we're like having conversations with non-Christians about Christ, we like frame them as like, oh, this is like a birds and a bee conversation, right? right? I recently had to have the birds and the bees. And let me just say, I just tried to get through it. Okay. It was miserable. It was painful. And I just tried to get through it. And I think that's how we think about sharing the gospel. We just have to grind our teeth. We know we have to do it. We don't want to be here. We're praying for the rapture. We want to get out of here and we just go for it. We say things like, Tom, just sit down. I have something to share with you. Jesus died for your sins. Repent. Okay, all right. Text me if you have any more questions, right? Paul doesn't talk about this. I think sometimes our fear in evangelism, it comes across as boredom. We might not be bored with Christ, 
but it sure looks like we're bored with Christ. And Paul says, as you talk to outsiders, those who don't know Christ, you should not be verbally bored. Your, your mannerisms, the, the manner in which you speak, whether, whether with your body language or with your words, you shouldn't look bored. We should talk in a way that makes Christ beautiful. Uh, there's a book in the Bible that I don't really necessarily know what to do with, so it's going to be a long time until I preach it, and it's the book of Song of Solomon. And uh, part of it is, I, mean, I even remember, I, I was a poetry major, basically, and so I remember like the first time as a new Christian reading it and going like, does this say what I think it is saying? I was so uncomfortable with it that this book is in the Bible. And it, generally speaking, means what it looks like it means. This is love poetry. Now, for much of church history, people have felt my, you know, being uncomfortable with this book. And so what we do is we allegorize and say, ah, this is Christ's love for the church. And much of church history has proven that these theologians have done this. And I think they're wrong. However, I would say this just by way of illustration. That in many ways, how we talk about Christ should be a bit like how the author Solomon talks about his bride in Song of Solomon. Christ is the bride of Christ. And so how we talk about Christ should be in some sense emotional and glorious and we should be filled to the brim like a lover is with his beloved. But so often our conversations with those outside of the church is not seasoned with salt. It has more pepper than salt, doesn't it? And then we see this contrast. Paul prays in verses 2 through 4 for active ministry, but then it's more of a responsive ministry, right? The the prayer is to act wisely, to capitalize on opportunities with someone as they ask questions. So here it's, people are going to ask you questions. People are going to be curious. Be ready for those opportunities. Now, I've been in ministry long enough to know that there are a few things that are more guilt, um, that, that produce more guilt in a Christian than evangelism. I mean, I've never met anyone saying, like, I don't have any guilt at all about this. No, we all feel in one sense guilty that we're not doing it enough. But what Paul is saying is that when you go to work, let's say, when you go to the office, you're called to work, not evangelism. That might sound crazy, but it's absolutely true. When you go to Boeing, they're paying you to build airplanes, not start a revival or a Bible study. But sometimes, as we work, as we live our lives, and I think this is in many ways freeing to say, okay, live, work well, work hard. We we, we saw that earlier. People are going to come up to you and ask you questions. We live in a very spiritual world where people have a lot of questions, constant questions, interesting questions. Don't for a second think that people are not going to come up to you and ask you various questions. It happens all the time. The the real question is, will you be ready for them? 
I mean, I literally saw this with my friend who was flying back um, on a plane and he was sat next to this girl and he was having this conversation with this girl. I'm like hearing this and she was like a college student and she said, oh yeah, I decided to go to this college, but I was interested in that college. And that college, doesn't matter what it was, was a religious college. And so he just said, oh, are you religious? And this is what this 21-year-old said. She said, oh, my, my, my mom is Jewish and my dad is Christian, so I'm very religious. And this is what my friend said. He goes, do you know what the difference between Judaism and Christianity is? And she goes, no one has ever explained it. And then he said, would you like me to? She was just curious. Curious. And the opportunity availed itself to him as he just sat on a plane because at the end of the day, God has put eternity into all of our hearts. And we've got questions. So as we live our lives, as we work in various vocations, the question isn't, oh, do you have to just like walk in and say, okay, this person I'm going to share the gospel with right now. Maybe you do that. I'm not saying never do that. But I know that like it needs active and responsive evangelism, right? So some of the best conversations are not around the kitchen table when we're having like a Bible study or a family worship, right? Often that's like mutiny. The best times are when my kids ask me a question. Like, who, who made God? And now I'm off to the races. Let your conversation be, have a tincture, a feel of salt, that you really are excited about Christ and what he's doing in your life and people can feel it and sense it. Have gentleness and peace and and be watchful. Wait for opportunities because God will bring people to you who have questions. The question is, will you be ready to speak to them about God? So church, are we taking those opportunities? Those opportunities to preach and teach when people come and ask questions. It's dangerous to do this because there are only three responses when the gospel goes forth. Acts 17 talks about this. In Acts 17, Paul's preaching in Athens and the gospel goes forth and there's three responses. Some mocked, some ridiculed, some wanted him in prison. That'll always be a response to the dangerous communication of Christ inside and outside of the church. Some mock. Others, secondarily, asked more questions. They were curious. They want a dialogue. What's this resurrection bit? Let's, let's talk more. And yet some, Acts 17 say, believe. Do you want to know the danger of Christ and communicating Christ inside the church and outside of the church. I mean, I'm stealing from next week's sermon, but you just got to keep reading. There's just a list of, uh, of teachers and ministers and people who have been transformed by Christ because Paul kept praying and praying and praying for more opportunities for him and his band of brothers and sisters that the gospel would go forth in power and that he would be clearer and clearer and clearer so that more and more people would come into the kingdom. Communication is always dangerous. Sometimes it's worth it. 
March 20th, 2006, about two months later, this girl named Lisa finally said she loved me. Took two months. She was probably right. I jumped the gun a little bit on that one. Communication is dangerous, but so often it's worth it. So, communicating Christ inside this church should be dangerous. It should be marked by precision and clarity. And outside of the church, it's dangerous too. That is the tension all of us need to live in. Well, let's do the very thing now that Paul encourages us to do. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for what you're doing in our lives. Lord, we thank you that none of us have arrived. All of us have questions. And so we pray that our church and the individuals of our church would be marked with an increased appetite for the Lord Jesus Christ and an increase in faithfulness in communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we just thank you for every opportunity. We pray that you would give us eyes to see, eyes to see hungry men and women that we might, by your spirit, communicate the glories of Christ so that your kingdom can advance and that you would eternally and endlessly get the glory you so rightfully deserve. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.